0: please listen to the following message as our menu options have changed. I want to suggest that simple sentence can cause many of us to breathe a frustrated sigh as we realize we're going to be on hold for a while. As we listen to those options and sit there ready and poised to push the one that really fits our call. And then as we push that and we listen to inane non-copyrighted music, music that doesn't have to be copyrighted because nobody really knows the tune. Or sometimes if you're lucky, maybe it's oldies, but usually it's just kind of an ad infinitum. And you're listening there and all of a sudden the music pauses. All of our representatives are busy helping other customers. Your call is important to us. Please stay on the line and your call will be answered in the order in which it was received. In that moment, you don't feel that important. In that moment, you don't feel like you have any access to real assistance. Sometimes they'll come back on and say, If you go to our website, you could find the help you need there. No, I can't. My question isn't on your frequently asked questions in the website. I want to talk to a person, to someone who's real. Sometimes, it feels like help is inaccessible. But on the other hand, there are times, there are times when you and I feel that we really matter. And literally as I was kind of finalizing this we'd, uh, and, and working on it the other day, I, I wanted to call the company that put our awning in. It needs some cleaning. I, and, and so I wanted to call them and ask them what they recommend for cleaning. So I dialed the number that's on the tag there, and the phone rang once, it rang twice, and then a person answered. And I waited, I hesitated for a second because you and I both know that sometimes those voicemails are so good that you start talking and then they talk over you with the message. So I waited, and then I realized this is a real person. And we talked. And she listened to my question, and she understood my question. And and she let me know that they used to send out crews to clean the awnings, but they didn't do that anymore. And so then she gave me specific instructions on how to go about cleaning our awning. And then we joked and laughed about how that might be a good summer job for some teenagers wanting to earn a little bit of extra cash. And we had a conversation when I hung up. I was was smiling. She was accessible, her company was accessible. I was valued, I felt important. You know, we just finished this little service of dedication, and I know for any of you parents out there, as parents, we want to be accessible to our children. My kids each have a separate ringtone. Well, my daughters share a ringtone, but my son has one that's just for him. My sons-in-law have ringtones. My daughter-in-law has a ringtone. My wife has a special ringtone. I want to be accessible to those people. Now, I tell you, in this time of texting, If my youngest ever calls me, I will be freaking out. Like there is something desperately wrong if he's called, or maybe something great, because it's usually just a text. But I want to be accessible. In this era of caller ID, we can control our accessibility. Sometimes, sometimes we get fooled into thinking. That maybe, maybe because we live in this great big world with great big problems, that God has such a great big job keeping everything going, that there are people out there that are far more significant, far more important, far more worthy of his time than I am, and we wonder, is God really accessible? Today, we're going to look at a passage in Romans that reminds us that God is accessible to everyone. Now, we're in the middle of what I believe is the most difficult section in the book of Romans, especially if we just jump into this section and kind of read through it and don't think about it. And we're answering the question. We started answering it last week. It's the fourth of our questions Who is really in control of this world? And obviously we saw last week that we serve a sovereign God who is in control. We serve a sovereign God who has a plan and is carrying out that plan and invites you and me to be involved in that plan. But. Sometimes when we limit our understanding of sovereignty to just being completely in control, to managing every aspect of one's life, to being a a giant puppet master, we tend to think that, well, I don't matter to God. Things are going to happen. I don't get to be involved in them. But we serve a sovereign God who's accessible. And I want to show you this morning three ways in which we serve a sovereign god who's accessible and the first one is found in the first four verses of Romans chapter 10 and what and the simple reality is god is accessible because he opened the door as we read earlier, Paul says that his heart's desire, his prayer is for the Israelites that they may be saved. Remember, we saw that last week. Paul agonizes over his own nation, over his own people, his own race, because they have all the privileges. They have the Old Testament, they have the prophets, they had the law, they had all of that, and yet they haven't turned to God. And as he explores with his audience of both Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish followers of Jesus, he he wants to bring them along, and he says, this is my heart. This This is what I want for them. I want them to be saved. In other words, I want them to have a relationship with God that is more than just a following a bunch of rules. It's a personal relationship with God that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And i got to believe that reality should be the desire of every one of us, the desire of each of us for those we love. Now Paul admires his people for their zeal. He says this. He goes, I can testify about them. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They were enthusiastic for God, but there was a flaw in their enthusiasm. It wasn't based on knowledge. It was an enthusiasm for God, but wasn't based on their knowledge of really who God is. I've had this conversation with people many times. No doubt you have too. And someone eventually looks at you and says, it really doesn't matter what I believe as long as I'm sincere. Now that sounds good. That sounds really user-friendly. Everybody can wrap their heads around that, but it's not based on knowledge. You see, I could have this sincere belief that I can fly, and my sincerity, as sincere as it is, will not overcome gravity. But see, I believe I can fly, and I can visualize, and if I can visualize that I can fly, I can realize that I can fly, right? If I believe it, I can achieve it, because I was told that I can do anything as long as I believe in myself. So I believe in myself, I visualize, I realize I'm going to achieve it, so I take a ladder and I climb up to the... First level, and I take a stepladder, climb up right to the top of the gym, and there I am standing on the edge of the gym, believing so I can achieve, visualizing so I can realize, sincere. And you all know when I jump off of that building, at best, I'll come up with at least one, maybe two broken legs. At best, my sincerity was not based on knowledge. No matter how much I enthusiastically flap my arms, it's not going to happen. Paul says, my own people, the Jews, who had all the teaching of God and all the law and the history of the patriarchs and the prophets, they tried to craft their own righteousness. They tried to craft their own spirituality. And you know what? The more things change, the more they remain the same. Things that I'm reading right now tell me that it seems to be the, the, the drift of our own culture. People want to make their own. So they say, well, I, I don't want the, the organized church anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. I wanna, I'm going to do my own spirituality. And as a result, they can be zealous without knowledge. And you know what? People say, you know what, I know how to give back, and that's my spirituality. And you know what, I think we all ought to give back. We all ought to be involved in doing good things. It's important to volunteer to give back. It's important. I mean, I'm thankful for those who volunteer at the animal shelter, take care of God's creatures. I'm thankful for those who go and work with Habitat for Humanity and help somebody build a house that they can live in. Uh, It's great if you want to run a 5K to raise awareness for autism. Fantastic. Touches my family's life in a direct way. It's not bad. But just giving back as the sum total of my spirituality doesn't put me in right standing with God. I was thinking about that, and when I was in college, my roommate, my second year at, at Moody, was in a, a, a singing group, and he had a solo, and uh, the, one of the verses of the solo that he sang says this. If I had all the riches this world had to give, and I gave it all away, every penny to my name, to some beggar, on life's dark and lonely street. All the kindness found in me would not win eternity. And the chorus says it wouldn't be enough. No, it wouldn't be enough to buy one splinter of the cross Jesus died on. You see, of his people, the Jews, Paul says they pursued the stuff They pursued all the things. They pursued the the works, and and, and the law was there, and it was important, but they put all of their emphasis on the law and none of their emphasis on their heart, and and they missed the fact that God had already opened the door. The door, Paul says it right here, Christ, verse 4, is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The door is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the culmination, the completion, the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Think about that. I came to fulfill the law. His fulfillment of the law ultimately by paying the price for your sin and mine on the cross So that the completion of the law brought about righteousness, right standing with God. And right standing with God is available to everyone who believes. Now Paul's going to build on this. But I think the point for us today, this morning, is to remember that God is accessible because he opened the door. But it goes on in the next Eight, nine verses, Paul says, in essence, God is accessible because he is true to his word. Paul continues to paint this contrasting picture. Verse five, Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Paul paints this picture and he uses these references to the law. And what he's doing is he's contrasting between the rules and regulations of the law versus the righteousness that's found in taking God at his word and living by faith. Now, it doesn't always come through in the translation. And one of the things we need to know is that New Testament writers were very free in their use of and references to the Old Testament. Paul's actually referencing Leviticus 18.5. And and the essence of it is it's very difficult to live out every aspect of the law. Last fall into the wintertime, I actually sat down and on a daily basis worked my way through reading the book of Leviticus. It had been a while since I had really dug into Leviticus. And I admit, it takes time to get through. It's it's a difficult book. part of why it's difficult is because it doesn't fit any sort of context that we are used to. Having a conversation recently with someone, and they just couldn't wrap their head around the f- the way that I grew up in a very, I mean, I would say ultra-conservative. In fact, my definition of Christianity as a kid was don't. If it's good, it's not of God. Don't. If it's fun, can't be of God. That's the world. I mean, it was, I mean, that's yeah, no, that's pretty close to it. And they couldn't, they, whoa, whoa, whoa. and I said, but that's how I grew up. For me, it was normal. It was my normal. It was the way we lived. I didn't know that there was some freedom in Christ till I got older. For the people in the Old Testament, the, they, the Leviticus was, this is life. These are the laws. This is the way we live. And, and so we, we have to be careful to say, okay, what's going on in their context? But it stood out to me as I read that. And as I understood that God, in establishing a nation, thought through almost every detail that sometimes maybe there was this fear that maybe I missed something. Maybe I've missed a detail. Maybe I've missed part of, maybe I'm not really doing what God wants me to do. And yet in His grace, God provided a sacrifice for them to bring that would cover the sins of omission. The sins I did that I didn't know I did. And, and so there's that grace. And Paul says, God is at work. And I want you to feel that tension a little bit about maybe you've missed something because that tension should push you to saying, okay, God, who are you and what do you want from me? And he, then he kind of references Deuteronomy chapter 30, which talks about God restoring people after they've sinned. And he reinterprets that passage. And he puts a Christ-oriented message to it. it. And it's the idea that Moses says, the righteousness by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. In other words, don't think that you can go up and somehow work your way to heaven and bring Christ down to your level. You can't do that. And don't think that you need to plumb the depths of the world and somehow You have to bring Christ up from the dead. Your effort, your earning brings him up from the dead. It doesn't work. The idea in the passage, in the overall passage, is Moses talked to the people about circumcising their hearts. In other words, always for the law, it was about the heart. heart. If your heart is right with God, then you are right with God. If you're just doing stuff, and your heart is not right with God, the stuff doesn't matter. It's about your heart. Paul points out that we can't correct our own sinfulness. We need to gain access to, by God, by God, to God by the work that God has already done. Paul says the word of God is near us. It's in our very being if we believe it doing part of the law was designed, the doing part of the law was designed to create attention and, a, and actually a, a little bit of a fear so that I would say, okay, God, what does it mean to come to you and be fully accepted? Now, what that does is leads us to a very familiar passage in Romans. How do I gain access to God? How do I know God is accessible to me? How do I know God will accept me? And it begins with the knowledge of the fact that Jesus is Lord. Paul says, he, he picks it up here in, in verse 8. Well, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and your heart. And the message we proclaim concerning your faith. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the first part of understanding who God is is to realize that he's God and we're not. Jesus is Lord. Coming out of Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we're told that Jesus is the active agent in creation. That Jesus is the one that sustains creation. And and, and so the reality is that when we acknowledge that, when we come to the core of our being and say, Jesus is Lord, I'm not Lord, Jesus is in control, I'm not in control, then we begin that step into a right relationship with God. And Paul says, here it is. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And I think it's interesting that Paul reverses that because we tend to make it a formula. Oh, so you have to believe first and then confess. Paul says it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can confess first and then believe. or You can believe first and then confess. It doesn't matter. It's what happens in your heart. It's not a, a. It's not a formula. It's not some kind of a pre-written prayer. It's not just repeating a prayer after somebody else. Nothing wrong with any of that. But there's not one specific way to enter the door that has already been opened. It's that you enter the door. We transfer our trust from ourselves to God. Heart belief. Anyone, he says, who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. Now that's the second time in these two passages we've seen that reminder of not being put to shame. That word shame is a word that can be translated disgraced. In the context, I think what Paul is saying is God isn't going to pull some kind of divine bait and switch that when anyone trusts him, then they're going to realize, oh, that was a mistake, I regret that. No, when you trust Him, He won't put you to shame. He won't disgrace you. He won't. He, he, he forgives you. Part of that shame is some people think, well, yeah, I trusted God, but you know what? I still have all the yuck in my life. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be there. But God doesn't look at that anymore. He forgives you from that. He forgives you from the yuck of your life. He, he forgives you. He restores you. He gives you strength to look back on it and say, yes, I made errors, but God has forgiven those. I may have some consequences to deal with them, but I can move on with grace. And what's more is this offer is for everyone. Remember, Paul is writing to an audience that was made up of Jewish followers of Christ and non-Jewish followers of Christ. And sometime when you've kind of had privilege you think maybe I'm a little better than everyone else and Paul says absolutely not anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile the same Lord is Lord of all there it is there's no difference Jew and Gentile yes you have different backgrounds different paths to the door but we all go through the door the same way and then he says not only is the same Lord Lord of all He richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an offer that's for everyone. It's not just a Jewish offer. It's for everyone. It's not an offer in which anyone else has to give up their cultural identity. It's Jew and Gentile. It's equally for non-Jewish people as well. Paul pulls out that quote And that quote is from the prophet Joel. It was actually used by Peter also on the day of Pentecost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the essence of accessibility. You don't have to be part of the staff to enter the door. You don't have to have a backstage ticket to enter the door. You don't have to prove your net financial worth to enter the door. You don't have to need a certain level of education to enter the door. Everyone means everyone, no exceptions. It involves every person, every race, every ethnicity. There are no conditions except to call on the name of the Lord. No one is left out. To call on the name of the Lord means to depend on him. To call on the name of the Lord means to depend on his authority. It means that transfer of trust. You know, when our children were younger, and maybe it was one of those evenings where they were sick and we're in the middle of the night, and, and they call out for mom or they call out for dad, that's a, a call of dependency. I know when I call for mom or I know when I call for dad, they will be there. I trust them to be there. I trust them to care for me. I trust them to meet my need. And that's the point. That's what's, what it means to call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord means I'm Calling on the name of the sovereign God. I'm trusting the authority of the sovereign God. I'm depending on him. I believe that he is true to his promise, true to his word. I believe that I have confidence that he will do what he says and will accept me without condition because he's a sovereign God who's accessible. And He will in no way shame me or disgrace me or make me feel bad for depending on Him. He wants me to depend on Him. When we call on the name of the Lord, we're saying, I realize I can't make my life work on my own. When we call on the name of the Lord, we're saying, I realize that in and of myself, I I don't even know what the future holds. None of us do. I know we have plans. You have plans, I have plans. We have plans tomorrow to go with our kids and I'm smoking ribs and I'm smoking some mac and cheese because my two oldest grandchildren if I don't bring smoked mac and cheese they will disown me. You know, and that's the plan. But you know what in a heartbeat that plan could change. We don't know the future, but we serve a God who does. It means that we understand, I can't pay for my own sinfulness. I can't overcome my own sinfulness. God's promises will be saved. We'll be saved from the eternal penalty of sin. We'll be saved from the futility of trying to fulfill our own righteousness. We'll be saved from the uncertainty of death. And we enter this new relationship, a relationship of love, a relationship of acceptance, a relationship of hope, and yes, a relationship of accountability. We're called to join the sovereign God who's accessible, and we get to be part of the process of his plan. But Paul's not done there yet. Because a God who's accessible is a God as accessible as we are faithful to tell others. It's not about keeping it to myself. And Paul says, very familiar verses again for some of us. How then can they call on one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they've, whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is a series of questions for everyone. Don't make the mistake of limiting these questions to people who believe God may have called them to go serve him cross-culturally. It's not just for them. God isn't tell- if God is telling you to go to Pago Pago, you better go. But he's not telling everybody to go to Pago Pago, and he's saying I'm not limiting this to those Pago Pago. Don't limit this question to people like me who believe God called them to be pastors. It refers to me, but it's not limited to me. To the best of our knowledge, the people that first received this letter were just regular people. Foreign missions, as we call it, hadn't been invented yet. Pastors, as we look at them today, hadn't been invented yet. They were just regular people living in a big city that was a difficult city to live in, that wasn't for them. And he's saying, you know what? It's all of our tasks to go and just to live and speak this truth that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the message of God is a message that is lived out, but it is a message that also needs to be shared. It's a verbal message. And that line about the beautiful feet, feet aren't typically beautiful, you know, unless you're like some kind of a foot model. Most of us, we look at our feet and go, well, yeah, I'll wear these slip-ons, but, you know, you know don't look at my feet, you know. Uh, feet are not pretty, per se. But in a day and age when messengers came and delivered messages, not just through text message, but they actually came running up and they said, oh, you know, I have a message. And if that was good news, then they said the feet that brought the good news are beautiful. The feet that brought the good news are Beautiful. You and I, who've put our faith into Jesus Christ, have the best message for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What an amazing message. And it's a message that's devoid of politics. It's it's a message that's devoid of strife. It's a message that's devoid of separation. It is the absolute best message of inclusion and equity. Everyone. Leaving nobody out. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I would encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to have a brief, and I mean brief, statement or account of why you follow Jesus. And if you want to put a number on it, no more than two minutes. People come to you and say, well, how, why do you follow Jesus? Well, it all began in a log cabin in the hills of West Virginia. They, they, they don't want to hear that. I follow Jesus because He truly gives me rest for my soul. He gives me hope for tomorrow. He gives me peace when there's struggle all around. That's why I follow Jesus. That's that's less than two minutes. People want to see how you live your life day in and day out, and eventually they want to know what makes you tick. And we have to back up what we say we believe by how we live. Not just at home or at school or in the neighborhood, but on social media, with strangers that we run into, everything we do can reflect what does it mean to love my neighbors myself. And you know what? None of us will do that perfectly. And Sometimes we have to go back to that neighbor or that stranger, that person, and say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? I had to do that a bunch of years ago. I, something wasn't going on right here, and, and I ended up getting thrown into the hospital overnight. I didn't want to be in the hospital. I'm a bad patient, okay? I'm going to tell you that. I am a bad patient. And I snapped at the nurse whose name (laughs) happened to be Grace. And they discharged me as I demanded. And the next day, I called the nurse's station. And I asked for grace. And I apologized. I was wrong. I didn't, you, you, you didn't deserve the way I was being snippy and snappy, and I was wrong. Sometimes we need to do that. Because what that does is it reflects to the world that we care about them, that they are valued, that they're important, that that, that our God loves them and our God wants us to love them. And yet, Paul says with all of that, we've got to realize another reality. Look at verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Not everybody is. You can be the best neighbor in the world. You can be the best friend in the world. You can be the best Christian of anybody you know. And not everybody is going to be excited about that. Not everyone will appreciate you. That message is so specific. Not everyone accepted the good news. What is the good news? It's the word about Christ. Paul says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And, And the answer to that is nobody. Isaiah felt like he was speaking to the wind sometimes. In fact, he was told in his commission in Isaiah 6, go to this people who will be ever hearing but never understanding. Consequently, he says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Jesus Christ. It's the word about Christ. And then Paul says of his own people, and he quotes here, he'll quote David and then Moses and then Isaiah again. But, but I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, the words to the ends of the earth, world. Yeah, they heard. They heard repeatedly. But they didn't get it. They didn't grab a hold of it. And again I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. They got upset by those that did hear and respond that they thought were inferior. And so what did God do? He said, I'm going to make myself even more accessible to the nations. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. God made himself accessible to Israel, and he made himself accessible to the nations, and Israel by and large refused. And see, I would say, and especially, I don't have time to go into it, but I think the nation of Israel was perfectly placed by God in what we call the promised land at the crossroads of two major trade routes so that they could be the ones to export the message of a God who loves, of a God who wants them to serve Him, that they could export that to the world, and they chose not to. They were to be the conduit of God's truth and God's love. But since they decided not to be that, God went to the nations. And notice this last line here in verse 20 and verse 21. As Isaiah boldly says, or verse 21, but concerning Israel, he said, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You see, it's it's like God is standing at the door that he's opened and he's saying, here I am. Here I am. Nation of Israel, I love you. Here I am. People of the world, I love you. Here I am. The door is open. It's accessible. I find it interesting that on the liturgical calendar today is Pentecost Sunday. It was on Pentecost that Peter preached that first message of the crucified, risen, living Jesus. But it wasn't just Peter. It was that 120 people, those men and women who spilled out of that upper room, who were speaking the truth about Jesus and were speaking it in a way, in this miraculous way, that people from all over the Mediterranean region heard the message about Jesus in their own language, in their own dialect. They heard the message of Jesus, and they responded to the message of Jesus. And it was as if God was standing there in that message, holding out his arms and welcoming all who believe. And when Peter finally stood up and spoke, the core of his message was Joel 2.32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is still holding his hands out continuously to all. He invites everyone to turn to him to see him for who he is, to come to him and to find true rest for our souls. You and I in this life will never be able to explain the workings of our God. We will not be able to answer the pressing questions of how could he love and yet allow so much pain? We don't get that. We don't have those answers. We have one answer today. A sovereign God is accessible, and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you are a God who's accessible. Thank you that you're a God who loves us with an everlasting love. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, have invited us into your presence. And I pray, dear God, today that as you have invited us into your presence, that we would continue to worship you by the way we live, by the way we behave, that others would see you in us. And even as we go on in this service, Lord, as we celebrate communion, as we sing some songs of faith and celebration, may we remember that we can only do that because you have opened the door. In Jesus' name.